This is really the definition of paradox. It's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Something that when you're, whenever you first hear it, you're thrown off a little bit because it doesn't really sound right. But then if you really start thinking about it, it's like, you know, there's actually some truth to that. Uh, I, I brought a few illustrations for you. This first one may apply to some of you in the room today. And it's, it's uh, deep down, you're really shallow, you know. Some of you took that personally. You're like, That's kind of mean. Uh, well, you know, anyway, deep down, you're really shallow. The next, the next is this, less is more. How many of you live by that principle? Um, one thing about that principle, though, is it applies to most things, but it, it definitely does not apply to money. Um, I'm just going to be real with you, you know. <laughs> less money it's just less money, okay? <laughs> go, to, go to the electric company and be like, hey man, less money is more money, right? They're gonna be like, nope. <laughs> Turn off your power. <laughs> it's not gonna work, right? It only works in certain contexts. But uh, whenever you grow in your knowledge, you find out how much you don't really know. Come on. I mean, I'm 34 years old, and, and the older that I get, the more I realize I'm dumb as dirt, y'all. Like, I really, I don't know that much. It's, it's, I'm, it's like I thought that the older that you got, the more that you felt like you, you knew, you were a little bit more confident, and, you know, this is what I believe in, and blah, 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 and the more, other than Jesus. But, you know, like, the older I get, I'm like, uh, huh? you realize how much you don't know. And uh, it's these paradoxes. And, and there's many, many others that we hear a lot and sometimes we don't really get them. But, uh, but there's truth in them. And the Bible has a lot of paradoxes in the same way. A lot of things that whenever you first read it, it almost, you could just gloss over it, which I think a lot of people do. They read something that they don't understand in the Bible and they just keep going. Like I read a whole chapter today. Do you remember anything that you read? Absolutely not. <laughs> it was all, you know, just Hebrew to me. You know, <laughs> it's like, first question would be, why did you read a Hebrew Bible? But the second would be, um, that was a joke, but I'm going to stop joking because they're not landing well. But um, the other would be, why didn't you just read one verse and really understand it and then move forward from there? You know, let's not just gloss over the word of God and just be confused with all the things that we believe. Let's actually delve deeper into them. So the paradox uh, that, that we're going to lean into today is this whole concept of death for life. Death for life and, you know, dying to live. And what does that mean? Where does it come from? But as believers, we, there's a lot of things that we believe in that really don't fit into or align with the thinking patterns of the world. It's kind of part of the deal. Whenever you say that you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in him, in that moment, you're, you're saying there's a lot of things that you believe in that other people who live for themselves or live for whatever, you know, the, the kingdom of the world, they're not gonna understand those things. It's, it's almost like talking in another language and it's confusing. And so there's tension in the way that we live even when sometimes, uh, this is something that always astonishes me, is that if you take maybe a, world, uh, a worldly thinking pattern, 
and you play that type of living out long term, everybody would agree that it would be destructive and, and harmful to your, your, your body or your thinking or your relationships. A lot of people would agree, but yet it's still so celebrated in culture, right? It, it's always confusing to me. It's like that's, they, the world calls something's good that are obviously negative in nature, they're bad. And yet in the, in the church, we'll call things good that are, are really actually good. And yet it's looked down upon or it's mocked. It's this upside down thinking. And it's something that we need to discuss. Like what are some things that we as Christians believe that we should really understand the depth of it and not just say it, but actually understand it. And we're gonna start with this concept of death for life. And Luke 17, give you an example. It says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Huh? <laughs> Does anybody else ever read the Bible and after you get done reading a verse, you just go, huh? <laughs> it's just literally you say that in that tone. Confusion. What does that mean that if someone tries to keep their life, they'll lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it? I mean, all of us in this room though, as, as well-seasoned believers who, you know, can read the Bible and we understand all aspects of the Bible, we don't get confused with anything like that, but there's other people who do. So because of those other people, we'll delve deep into this topic today. All right. Death for life, losing our life. How do we gain something? Thing by losing it. Well, there's, a, there's a, an important way to study concepts and ideas in scripture, and it's by going to the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible. You go back and you find, the, when is the first time that the Bible talks about that type of concept? And then you sort of go from there. And so this whole concept of sacrificial living or, or something having to die for something else to live, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And some of you were like, I knew we were going there again. I, I knew it. He always talks about Adam and Eve. A lot of things took place in that moment. And if we don't go back to where it started, we just pick up some, some random spot in, in the Bible or in time to kind of choose to where to talk about a topic, it, it might lose some of its originality. Like where did it actually start? And this whole concept started with Adam and Eve. And you know the story, they, they chose to have knowledge of, uh, of good and evil versus staying ignorant, okay? And just pure and innocent before God. They wanted to know more. They wanted to be like God, which still happens today. All of us, we wanna know everything. Come on, we wanna know it all. And, uh, and God's like, no, it would be better if you didn't. Stay innocent, stay pure. And uh, they decided not to. And so because of that, sin entered into the equation. And this is something interesting. Whenever they sinned, they immediately knew that they were naked and they went and they hid and they, they sewed together fig leaves in order to make some sort of clothing for themselves to hide themselves because there was shame, there was guilt. The first, can you imagine the first time as an adult, all of a sudden feeling shame, feeling guilt, like that negativity, we're used to it. <laughs> we're used to that weight and that, that kind of that, that dark feeling, but they had never felt that. It was almost like your, your four-year-old or five-year-old just being totally innocent, but yet them being like 30. And then all of a sudden, all of you know, sin, all of that realization coming on them. And they felt so shameful. They realized they were naked. They covered themselves. We pick it up in verse 21 of chapter three. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first time that we see that God actually took something that was alive, killed it, 
took the skin and clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This shows us that sin can't be dealt with or paid for in human efforts, but only through God's pattern of atonement. He already, from, from the get-go, he realized, okay, now I've got to go, no, I got to go another direction with this. Because this sin that took place, it can't just go undealt with. It can't just exist and be okay. God cannot come into contact with it. It's got to be paid for in some way, shape, or form. And in this moment, this is the way that God did it. And it's the first time that we see this. God was the first one that killed an animal. So uh, let that sink in, right? <laughs> anyway, I'm not going there today. But uh, where else in scripture is death for life illustrated? Like kind of, where do we go from there? There's a lot of different spots, but we're gonna move forward to the Passover. The Passover is in Exodus and it's the first time that we see it. And look, if you've never done a study or, or read up on the Passover, I'd encourage you to do so. There is so many things, there's so much, there's richness in, in everything, how it, what, what things represent, everything matters. And so if you just read it, you know, just, okay, I guess that was kind of strange. If you don't look deeper, it will always look a little strange until you start seeing what everything represents. And so that, I kind of want to bring that up and, and show you what uh, some of these things represent right now. And it's an exodus and this is what's going on. Many of you know the story, but I just to recap it real quick for those of you who don't, um, the Israelites, God's people were in bondage, okay? They're, they're in Egypt, which is always the type and shadow in the Bible of the world, okay? Being away from God, the world, Egypt. They're there, they've been there for like 400 years and God, uh, God decides to bring them out of Egypt, bring them out of bondage. So he goes and he finds a man named Moses who had actually grown up in Egypt as an Egyptian. He had gotten exiled, he's out in exile, been there for years. And God goes to him and says, I want you to go back and I want you to set my people free. I want you to be my mouthpiece. And you know, Moses said no multiple times and God eventually grabbed his arm and just like bent it and said, you're going. All right, not physically, but, but in other ways, that's exactly what he did. He said, no, you're gonna go. Like you're gonna do this. And so Moses goes and he stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And can you imagine knees shaking a little bit? Just like, uh, God said to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And uh, ultimately he, he said no a, a bunch of times, which is really another part of the story where God would actually harden Pharaoh's heart to say no. And then he begins to send these plagues to, uh, to, to you know, harm the Egyptians in different ways and their food and, and, and crops and all sorts of different things, disease and whatnot. But yet he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh would say, no, send another plague. No, send another plague. And so Moses kept going. Until finally there was the big one, the big plague was coming and it was God was sending his death angel, which is pretty interesting to think about. God has a death angel, all right? And he sends this angel to come and kill the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, everybody in the land. And uh, so it's a big moment that's taking place. Um, this is not a time of rejoicing whatsoever. It's a time of deep despair. And can you imagine the doubt and the fear that even the Israelites are feeling at this time? Where they got Moses saying all this stuff, they're seeing all this death and destruction take place. And then God comes and says, this is what I want you guys to do. 
verse uh, three out of chapter 12. We're gonna read five through 11 as well. It says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year old males without defects and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community uh, of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the, door, of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. He said, basically, be ready to go. Eat in, in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So he says, if you do this, the blood on the doorpost, the angel will come. It will see the, the blood on the doorpost, and it will pass over that house. It's a beautiful illustration, something that God is very specific about. And the, the children of Israel, they do it and then God releases them out of bondage. But there's so many comparisons to be seen and understood in this. I just wanna throw out a few, you know, just right here while we're in this moment that you can see and understand, but listen to some of these comparisons between Jesus and the Passover lamb. It talks about the 14th day. The Passover lamb was slain on the eve of Passover on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, which is the first, first month of the Jewish calendar. Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed on the 14th day of the first month. Without blemish, the lamb had to be without blemish. Jesus was, uh, he was without blemish. He was sinless, all right? It's a very important part that Jesus was sinless. If people, if you ever hear somebody try to attack the sinlessness of Jesus, reject it. He was sinless. He was blemish-free. Four days, the lamb had to be brought into the house four days before the 14th. Four days before his death on the cross, on the eve of Passover, Jesus was brought into Jerusalem on a donkey. We know that story. Everything that Jesus did, every step was representing, re representing what happened in the Passover. I wonder how many people didn't see it. Like it was right there in front of them, they didn't see it. A lot of people did but so many people were blind to every prophecy that was being fulfilled through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Firstborn, the lamb died in place of the firstborn of the Israelites. Jesus died in our place. He died on the cross in order to reunite us with God. He was God's firstborn. The blood, the Israelites had to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on their doorposts as a sign to God. Whoever hid behind the blood of the, the lamb was safe from God's judgment against the Egyptians. Whoever hides behind the blood of Jesus is safe from judgment. That's us. Liberation. The lamb opened a way to liberation from the years of slavery to Egypt. If you're apart from Christ, if you don't believe in him, if you've not accepted that message, you are a slave of sin. You're a slave of Egypt still. But Jesus' sacrifice liberates us from the bondage of sin, removes the power. Come on, this is, this is our hope, y'all. This is it. This is what it represents. And so all of this, I mean, why did God do all of this? Why didn't he just say it? Well, he did all of this to illustrate to us, like, like to see and appreciate the pattern that he has set in place, the why behind the what. And you know, it's really unfortunate, guys. A lot of us in this room, we don't know Jewish culture. We don't know the backstory. We don't understand it. Some, some of us know it, but we never lived in it. And so a lot of the things that are in the Bible, we miss it. 
We missed the, the color, the richness of what God was saying and speaking to his people and, and how this was part of their life and their understanding. And we read it and we're like, putting blood on a doorpost is weird, all right? I'm calling the cops if somebody does that, all right? We don't have to do that now, but that's the way that we look at it and we, we miss like what, who the Bible was written to and, and how meaningful it was for them. That's why we've got to study the word of God. We've got to study these things to see the richness of it, to where whenever we sing songs like we were just saying, we read those lyrics, that we would see the meaning behind the meaning. All right, if you just sing songs and you have this very thin, shallow understanding of redemption and justification and all of these beautiful things, the grace of God, but you just have this religious regurgitated type of understanding, you can't sing with passion, <laughs> right? I mean, you just can't. It's like, it's, ew. I deserved hell, but you died in my place. You know, man, that's kind of weird. We just said hell in a song. I don't, you know what I'm saying? It's like, they wouldn't play that on K-Love. I don't know, right? Uh, little jab there. Just, uh, just keep going. <laughs> Why? We like to focus on the grace and the goodness, but what about the severity? What about the, the other side that without all of these things, we would only have this? That's the beautiful tension. And that's what brings so much joy Church shouldn't be boring whenever we talk about these things. Like, like, honestly, it shouldn't be this thing that we disconnect from and it's, you know, okay. It should be like something that fills us and activates something in our hearts if we truly understand it. Where else in scripture is death for life illustrated? I think it's the most impactful place is the cross. It's where we see the culmination of all of the types and the shadows and all of the, the blood and all this kind of stuff. It all comes together on the cross. Romans 4.25, I think it sums it up best. It says, he was delivered, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. It's not that just Jesus died, it's that he was raised back to life. Like that's the punchline, all right? The cross is the setup. The punchline is the resurrection. We talked about that at Easter this past year. If you were here, that the cross wouldn't have power without the empty tomb. It's both and. It's this death, but also this life that happens. And that's what brings our justification, which is basically this, being made right before God, not because something that we did, but because something that was given to us. We are made right. We are given. We are made justified before, before God because of Jesus, not because of how good we are and how many scriptures that we have memorized in Sunday school. That's not the way it works. Jesus died. He was raised for us to have access to God's presence, to have access to God's forgiveness, his grace. Without Jesus, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, there would be no mediator. There would be no link in the chain between God and man. He was that chain. He was that link. And now guess where we're at as believers? We're the next link in the chain where we have been given this task of reconciliation, of carrying on this good news, this, this message that Jesus came, died, was raised back to life for the forgiveness of sin. That's what we believe. That's where we're at. The bottom line is that sin brings death, but Jesus' death brings life, right? Sin leads to death. The Bible actually calls Jesus the second Adam. Sin entered into the world through the first Adam. Forgiveness, grace, forgiveness, justification, life, salvation entered into the world through Jesus, the second Adam. Things restarted. They restarted whenever Jesus came and died. It's a big deal. 
Another way that we, I guess, uh, illustrate or, or show these things that we're talking about is through something that we do every single month here at Northwood Church, and it's water baptism. The Bible says that every believer, every person that names the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior should be baptized. Believe and be baptized. And baptism for a lot of people uh, is, is a little bit weird. Um, I'll be honest, at times it, I've gone through, I'm like, like God, why did we, like, why do we have to get in water? And like, what is that whole, you know what I'm talking about? None of you guys ever think about anything like that. You're like, I would never question anything in the Bible. It's the Bible. Well, at times I tend to say, but why? Like, what did that, you know? Well, whenever we participate, whenever we are baptized, we actually participate in the life, death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There's so many types and shadows again in what's taking place. We are being buried to our old life and being raised to a new life. The Bible says we're a new creation. We're born again. Okay, that's, that's what all of this represents. And it also is this, this awesome way of, of declaring and proclaiming our faith in God and proclaiming it to all of our friends, our family, our church. Like, like we're for real about this. We're so excited that this year we've had close to 200 people already be baptized at Northwood Church. That is a big deal. It's a huge deal. If you ask me what am I most excited about, it's when I see people getting baptized because it's not just a moment in a chair where somebody was just like, yes, Lord, forgive me. You know, I think I'll be good for today. All right, and move on. But it's something that was like stuck, like God would like transform their life, transform their thinking. And they said, you know what? I want to take my next step and I want to be baptized. Some of you have never been baptized or maybe you were very, very, very young and it wasn't something that you did, it was more something that you had to do, but it wasn't you as a person naming the name of Jesus and, 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 and doing it for you and for what it represented, right? Maybe you'd like to be a part of that. If, if you've been saved, but you haven't been baptized, or maybe you find yourself in that second category, uh, we'd love to invite you to be baptized next week. We're doing it right here in this room, Sunday morning. And uh, if you sign up northwood.tv slash baptize, we'll send you all the information and, and, and let you know what time you need to show up and, and, and all that good stuff. But the point is, is, is take your next step and be obedient because whenever you do it, you are participating in something that's beautiful and, and matters. And that's what baptism is. It, it, all of these things tie together. Okay, the word of God is like one big storyline. Everything ties in. If you take away one aspect, it, it misses something, right? Because it all leads to Jesus. By the way, the point of the Bible, when you read it, is to point to Jesus. That, that's the, the punchline of the whole Bible is Jesus, okay? The Old Testament, where it's going, it's God's plan to redeem mankind. It's showing how, how the Israelites and the people of Israel that, that you know, knew God, they, they weren't living for God and, and the tension that God felt in that. It's all pointing to redemption. Also for us, most of us in this room as Gentiles, it's a pretty big deal for us because without Jesus, we'd be out of luck. We'd have nothing to, to, to put our feet on. There would be no rock. There would be no cornerstone for us but Jesus changed all of that. So how does this apply to us? A lot of you are like, that's a great teaching. What am I supposed to do with that tomorrow? This afternoon, how, like, so what? Like, what does this do for me? How am I supposed to live out of this? Well, the big question is because of Christ's death, how do we live? What is that supposed to look like? 
Like because of all that Jesus has done, that death, what kind of life does it look like for us? Well, Ephesians kind of starts breaking it open. It says this in chapter two, as for you, and for you, that means believers. It means those of you who have you know, chosen to, to follow Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, I wanna let you know something <clears throat> that each of us, we were born into a situation that we had no control over. We were born into death. We were born into this curse of sin that leads to death. No getting around it. It's not something that you earned. You didn't earn sin somewhere along the line. Like you were an innocent child and then somewhere along the line you begin to do bad things. And so then you entered into this curse of sin and all this darkness. You were actually born into it. Right? You just couldn't walk around and talk yet, okay? But as soon as you could talk, you started lying. You know, as soon as you could, you know, be selfish, guess what? You were selfish. Immediately, I've got a six, six and a half, almost seven, uh, no, I'm sorry. I've got a six and a half, almost seven-year-old. I've got a 10-month-old. And, um, and it's kind of crazy to see, uh, you know, at, at 10 months old, uh, Elin, she doesn't have a, a will yet. Not really. Okay, like we say no, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? But coming along very soon, we're gonna say no, and she's gonna go. (laughs) And she's still gonna do it, right? And then at that moment is where it begins for me. (laughs) That's where it it gets tough. But but we're born into it, y'all. It's nothing that we decide to be a part of or just decide not to be a part of. It's just the way that it is. And so he's saying, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's what that's, that's saying there. Okay, it's a big thing because a lot of people think that they're good and they're okay as long as they do a lot of good things. And guys, look, that is religion 101. That is deception 101. That's not, that's not where things began, okay? So verse two, You were dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. The ruler is Satan. That's who that is. That's that's the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. he He has power and influence in the world that we live in. He's called the father of lies. He is awesome at deception. He is really good at fear. And that's how he manipulates and controls people. Y'all, I think it's just a side note. I think it's so intriguing that in our culture, in America, we actually are in some of the safest times in human history. I mean, right now, we're all completely relaxed. Most of us, at least. We're, we're relaxed. We feel safe. We, we feel okay. Like, we're not really fearful about where we're gonna go after this and, and eat. Most of us are just planning on chilling out, watching some football or whatever the case is. It's, it's our, the way that we live life. We feel so safe, but yet at the same time, fear is at an all-time high. Anxiety is at an all-time high. This worrying spirit is on us and everybody's in fear and it's, all, it's a facade. It really is. Because right now, I'm safe. You're safe, right? So what is this, this, this thing? Could it be the ruler of the kingdom of the air? What happens whenever people get fearful? Disunity, things start breaking apart. Trust fails, relationships fall apart. Whenever there's fear in a family and there's no trust, that family is, is divided. Doesn't that sound like the plan of the enemy? 
Doesn't it? See, we got, we got to see things from that angle, not just from, oh, politics. You know, oh, different sides of the aisle. What, like, like, could it be just sin? Of course it could be. And, he, and he, he's saying, hey, guys, look, be aware of the ways of the world. Don't be involved in it and think like it. Stand outside of it and look at it and identify it for what it is. It's the, the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse three, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So he's saying, he, he starts opening up this whole lifestyle of, of living in a way that gratifies what you want to do in and of yourself. And he identifies that as a fleshly way of living, as a selfish way of living. And he says, he says, because of that, you were deserving of wrath. But then verse four, how many of you love the but God moments in the Bible? That's kind of the big, those are big deals. Here's one of them. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, can I let you know, don't ever get caught up in the mindset that God is not rich in mercy. There's a thinking that would like to come against the sovereignty and the love and the grace of God. And a lot of people say, well, go read the Old Testament. You'll see how hateful God is. I'd like for you to go actually read it through the lens of how many chances God gave, not how many times he judged, how many chances were given, right? He would speak to families and generations of people for years and say, guys, I want you to turn from your wicked ways. If you, he would do works and then he would send prophets and people refused. And out of that refusing, there came judgment. God has always been a loving God. That's why he did the, that's why he took the skin and closed, closed Adam and Eve. Why didn't he kill them on spot? Because he loved them. Why didn't he, why didn't in the Passover time, whenever the, the Israelites were bickering and then they get set free out of bondage and they still are talking back like we should go back to Egypt. Why didn't God just wipe them out then? Come on with Noah. Why did he retain those that, that, that had good, you know, uh, hearts after God? Why did he do that? Because he loves people and he gives ample time for repentance. He does. He's a God who is rich in mercy. Verse five, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. The grace of God overcomes judgment. We live in that time right now where God's grace is greater than judgment for all of us. All we have to do is just side with it. All we have to do is just agree and believe. God did all the work. He set us up, right? It's like, it's like volleyball, like bump set, and you're just up in the air ready. All you got to do is just finish. It's done. It's there, it's, right? It, it's what he did. He offers this gift. He brings it up in front of us, and he says, I've done it all. Don't worry about it. Just choose me. Say yes. And so many people slap that gift right out of his hand. Romans chapter eight says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you live according to what you wanna do, if you live according to every you know, desire, sinful desire that you have, if you live that life, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. He's explaining what it looks like, how it plays out. It's actually very simple. The gospel is very simple and the life of a believer is very simple. It's this, you live for Christ's desires rather than your own. That's it. 
We, we are more focused on and centered on the call of God on our life and what he has for us versus what we conjure up in, in our own selves. Our eyes are set on eternity. It's how we live life. It's how we think. It's how we process our relational issues. You're struggling in your relationships? Start processing that relational issue through eternity. Start processing it through what is God's desire for me in this situation? Whenever you start thinking like that, say it's marriage, very quickly your selfishness will be exposed and then you have a decision. Do I turn from that selfishness and live for selflessness, which is what God has called me to live like, or am I gonna gonna continue to live the way I'm living? Am I gonna continue to talk the way I'm talking? Or am I gonna put to death the deeds that I have in and of myself in order to live the better life that God has for me? It's very simple. It's not complicated. We make it complicated. We justify. We try to make it, make why we did that thing or why we said that thing. We try to build up so, and construct some sort of reasoning behind it versus just humbling ourselves and breaking and saying, I'm wrong. I'm off. And God, forgive me. I repent. I turn from that thinking. Let me tell you what happens. Not only, it's not some just vague emotional thing that happens whenever you do that. It's actually science, okay? That whenever you, whenever you bring up a thought, a negative tendency, or whenever you identify something in your life, in your thinking as wrong, it weakens the very essence of that thought. It breaks it down in your mind. Doesn't that sound like the Bible talking about being transformed and renewed? Why is confession so important? God knew it. He just didn't use words like synapsis and all kinds of things that I barely know what they mean. Electrical signals in our mind. And he's like, God, I, I created you guys. And look, if you will confess... And if you will repent and if you will identify that type of living as wrong and side with what I say, I am gonna renew you and transform you and you're gonna be somebody new in the end. Yeah, it might not be like this. That's what we want because we're ignorant, okay? Just be honest. We want it now. Like, that's too hard. I had to pray three times. Like, (laughs) it's so weak. It's what it is. It's weak. It's long-term. It's a long-term transformation. And Jesus is saying, and, and, and the, the, Paul is pleading, and God is pleading throughout all the scripture, my way is better for you. All you have to do is say yes. This life of Christianity is really a call to death in a certain sense of the word. I wanna read a, a quote from Kyle Eidelman. This is what he says. The expectation is obvious. When Jesus invites us to follow him, it's an invitation to die. Only when we die to ourselves can we truly live for him. That kind of surrender goes against every instinct we have. We want to hang on. We can't seem to let go. We refuse to pull the plug, but it is only when we die to ourselves that we can finally experience the resurrection power of Christ. Jesus died so we could live. Jesus set us up to have the opportunity to be justified before Christ. But that's part A. It's not just about dying to, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing good. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to do good, all right? And that's basically what you're saying is I'm trying to die to my flesh. It's about dying to your flesh, your desires, but also living for something else. You die in order to live for Jesus, 
to live for his ways. It's not just about saying no, it's about what are you saying yes to? Some of you are struggling. You're just trying to say no to a lot of things, but what are you saying yes to? We have this thing that we say a lot. It's, we're, we're, sometimes we're more sin conscious than we are God conscious. We're more about like, oh, when's the last time I did that? Or when's the last time I said that? And we start focusing on that so much instead of realizing that, that God is good, that his forgiveness, his grace abounds whenever sin abounds. Do we sin so that grace can abound more? No, of course not. That's the wrong heart. But whenever sin does abound, God's grace is sufficient to cover that. You begin to think that and pray that, not abuse that. God begins to renovate who you are. He changes the way that you see people. He changes the way that you see yourself. Some of you, you beat yourself up nonstop. If I go to church, God's gonna strike me dead. That is such a judgmental way of seeing God versus seeing him as a loving father who, who paid the price for you, who's given you everything that he's got. He loves you. Whenever he calls you a child, that's not a flippant term. He's given you life and he's for you and he's still not against you. So run to him, embrace that, the, the God-centered life and see if things don't radically shift. But you gotta start with a yes. It's two different, you know, really three different types of people in the room today. Some of you, you, you believe in Jesus. You, you've been living this life for a long time. Everything that I'm saying, you agree with. You're like, yes. Some of you are in a place where you, you do believe it, but as far as it actually playing out in your life, you realize that you're more about saying no to certain things versus saying yes to God, right? Like, like you know all the bad things, like don't do this, don't do that, because it's been hammered into you since you were a kid, but you haven't been like, like encouraged and, and shown how to live for Jesus, and then there's others of you who have fully, up until this point, you're just not a believer. You've rejected God and you're here today and it's awesome that you're here. You might be watching online, that's awesome. I think it's great uh, to, to, you know, to do that, to kind of put the feelers out. Like, what is this whole God thing? But God has been very honest. He's been very transparent in the way that he, he set this pattern in place. And all of it is literally, the Bible talks about it like a gift of salvation. It's, it's a gift that's been put together. There's a bow on top and it's right there in front of you. But again, you have to receive it. You have to say yes. You have to go all in. You have to buy in. It's not halfway. Jesus was not about halfway disciples. He told, he told some of the, the, the believers at the time that he was, whenever he was alive on earth, he said, he said if, if you're not willing to leave everything and follow me, you're not worthy of me. The bar is, is in one sense very low and in another sense, it's very high. There's a tension. So I don't want you to think that you say yes and it's, you know, rainbows and unicorns, it's not. Why? Because when Jesus calls us to live for him, he calls us to die to ourself. So in this place today, if you're here and, and you find yourself in that place where it's kind of fake, it's kind of thin, it's not really affecting who you are, and you find yourself also in the place that you know that you, haven't, you don't believe in God, you know you're far from him, but today you wanna make a decision to say, yes, this is your moment. Make no mistake about it though, guys. If you don't say yes, by default, you're saying no. If you don't accept, by default, you're rejecting. 
At that point, you're out from underneath any protection. You're out from underneath God's goodness. And your only ruler is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the only other option. You're either a child of God, a follower of God, or you're a follower of the devil. It's the way that this thing is, the way that it operates. It's, it's very, there's a, it's, it's just separate. There's no gray area, even though we try to create that gray area, gray area. So right here in this moment, bow our heads, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. You already know where you're at. You already know if you need to repent, if you need to ask God to forgive you and to change you and to receive this free gift of salvation, to die in order to live. And if that's you in this place, we're gonna say a simple prayer. You don't have to repeat after me. I do want you to agree with, and maybe in your own words, pray to your God. This is a big moment. This is where, this is where the sin that you were born into loses its power. It's where the curse is broken and you are made alive in Christ. Let's pray. God, I come before you and I'm humble and I'm broken. I've tried it my own way. I've misunderstood a lot of things and I've misrepresented. I've lived my life for a lie and today, I ask that you would forgive me, that you would change me. As I repent and I turn from my old way of thinking and I turn and I live this new life, God, I pray that you would empower me to live this life. God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. You are my source of strength. I declare that right now and I proclaim that I am a child of God through the work of Jesus on the cross, through his resurrection. I thank you for including me to your family, adopting me, grafting me in as a child of the King. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. I wanna stay in this moment of prayer because I believe that all of us, something hit us from some angle today about how we think and how we live. I just want us all right now to surrender our hearts to Him. If you feel comfortable, maybe it's been a while, just go ahead and lift your hands. It's just a sign of surrender to God. Father, we just thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient for us. God, that your grace covers a multitude of sin. And God, we just recommit ourselves in a, in a fresh way to die to our flesh and to live for your desires. God, we pray that right now that you would not just change what we do, but God, that you would go deeper and change the things that we wanna do. God, change who we are. God, we wanna be a holy people without spot or, uh, spot or blemish. God, uh, the church that you are coming back for, God, we dedicate our lives to you. Use us as a, as a, in a mighty way, in a strong way to affect Mississippi and this nation for your kingdom. God, we say yes to you again. Reveal to us what this means. God, as we read the word, make it come alive in our hearts and in our minds. God, let us not gloss over things and be uh, not, not understand what it is that you're trying to speak to us. God, we say yes to you. Speak to us, move through us. God, as we go out from this place this, this week, God, help us to be lights in dark places. God, to those family members, those friends, whoever it is that we come into contact with, God, would you set us up with opportunities to be a light to them, to bring this life to them. In Jesus' name we pray.
If you just made that decision, let me be the first to say congratulations. The decision to follow Christ is just the beginning of your relationship with God, and we'd love to help you with your next few steps. We're one church in multiple locations. We have a campus in Gulfport, Wiggins, and in Long Beach, Mississippi. If you're in one of those areas, we'd love to see you at one of our live services. You can visit our website, northwood.tv, for service times and directions. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time.